welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, guest podcaster Vanessa Inika Kanisha and I spoke with Renaissance woman Charlie Kemp, founder of Change the Tune and doctoral candidate in education leadership at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Charlie has tapped into every kind of schooling over the course of her own educational and professional career, which enables her to state with confidence that our systems are perfectly designed for the outcomes they create, and they're designed to fail. Students spend 80% of their lives outside of school. By the time they reach the sixth grade, this results in affluent kids having 6,000 extra hours or four extra years of learning. It's not about creating better schools. Even utopian schools can't touch the opportunity gap and resultantly the wealth gap. Change the Tune aims to, well, change that tune by leveraging universal connectors. Things like music, food, and sports through programming like Just Us Time, Holistically Dope, and Possibility Panels to reimagine the extended learning experience for youth in a way that creates mastery and memories, which is where true learning happens. For her, education isn't about equality or equity. It's about liberation. Charlie believes that music is the universal language of the soul, a way to say, I see you, and a panacea for societal problems. And she did a pretty good job convincing us of this throughout the episode. So thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Kanisha. I'm a rising junior from Queens, New York. Um, and in addition to being a podcaster with NGP, I'm also a junior facilitator at YVote. And today I'm really looking forward to discussing education equity and the different systems in place that create these huge disparities in our public school system, um, especially because they're so prevalent in New York. And in addition to kind of dissecting the problem, I'd also love to speak about how we can actually remedy these inequalities, especially, you know, through curriculum and pedagogy development. Hi, my name is Vanessa Chen. I am a rising sophomore at Stuyvesant High School in New York City, and I am also a policy debater in my free time. So today I'm interested in kind of talking about why teacher development is key to the success of young educators or like young students and how we can work towards creating that blueprint. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays, and I'm a high school rising junior, I have to get used to that term now, um, from Brooklyn, New York. And um, I'm particularly passionate about community building. And um, personally, I really love education. I'm planning on pursuing a career in education, maybe, um, but who knows. Um, and I also love music and activism. And so I'm so happy that the three combined uh, to make you. Um, so I'm very excited to discuss that and see what you're interested in and how that work came to be, but also see what the next steps are with that. And so um, I'm very excited for today's conversation. Hi, I'm Inika Kodestane, and I'm a rising high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I'm excited to talk about um, education, especially in its relationship to civics and politics. Um, I'm currently interning with the state senator, and like we're working on a policy project, and what I'm working on is 
um, required uh, civics education in New Jersey. So I, it was really interesting to see that you you have like a political background and, and are looking to sort of combine that with education. So I'm really excited to talk about that. My turn. Hi guys, I am Charlie Kemp. Um, I am the founder and executive director of Change the Tune. I'm also a doctoral student at Harvard studying education leadership. Um, I'm super excited to share and talk with you today about Change the Tune, the nonprofit I founded in 2017. Um, kind of rewind, I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a single parent household and I would say lower to lower middle class is the, the where I grew up. I started in private school, but we couldn't afford it, so I went to public school. And one of the things that's really unique about my journey, our board chair pointed it out, I've kind of tapped into every kind of education space. So I've been in private school in the K through 12 space. I went to a magnet school in the K through 12 space, which is where I graduated from. I went to a historically black college. I went to Spelman College for my undergraduate degree where I double majored in economics and political science. And then after that, I thought I was gonna go to law school, but instead I chose to do Teach for America in New York City. And I taught three years in the South Bronx and two years in East Harlem. And then after that, I went to USC, which is also a private school, uh, University of Southern California, and got my MBA. And then I went to work for a charter school after that for about five years, Green Dot Public Schools. And now I'm at Harvard, which is, you know, the OG university. So I feel like I've been through the education system in many different ways, shapes and forms. And it really influences my lens and how I see the world, which one of my favorite quotes is every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And our system has been designed to fail students, frankly. Um, one of the first things you read at Spelman College, actually, when you get there is Pedagogy of the, the, of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. If you haven't read it, read that. It just like your whole aperture. Um, and it really talks about the banking system of education and how we treat students as cogs in a wheel. And we really, the testing process, like I haven't taken a test. I can't tell you the last time I took a test. I've been two years at Harvard now. It doesn't make sense. Um, when you get into the work level, you, you really want to be able to make sense. So with, with that said, the testing process really doesn't make sense. And so a couple of things in terms of why. So after teaching middle school math in New York City and then working for a charter, I was like, if you've ever read Animal Farm, too, they make you read this book. I hated that book, but it's a really good it's called isomorphism. You know, the Republicans say they're going to be different than the Democrats, but inevitably they end up just like each other, honestly, at the end of the day. Or charters say they're going to be different than um, than district schools, and they they end up in the same way, honestly. So for work, when I worked for Green Dot Public Schools, I'd say, what should we do? And they were like, well, what's LAUSD doing? And I was like, but I thought we were going to be different. Um, and so change the tune, what do we do? The goal is to revolutionize the learning space. The Specifically, we focus a lot on the outside of school learning space. I'm gonna drop some numbers that people don't actually know and I think it's really important. Um, students spend 80% of their waking hours outside of school. You hear me, eight, zero. The upper income spend five times the amount of the lower income on outside of school activities. By the sixth grade, that amounts to about 6,000 more hours that upper income children have over lower income children. 
a school year is 12 to 1500 hours. So that means that's four extra school years that the upper income children have over lower income children. And so if you're not quite getting the pictures because of the numbers, people say we need better schools and, and that's not exactly true. Schools could improve, but we could make every school utopia from September to June, from eight to three, and we would never touch the opportunity gap. That's what those numbers mean basically. And so my goal with Change the Tune is getting people to wake up to that and know that it's also not just an economic issue. We know that economics is also tied to race. Non-white school districts on average make about $2,000 less per pupil. So if they're making $2,000 less per pupil, if you think about these after school and these extended learning opportunities in terms of summer, the weekends, whatnot, that money isn't there. And the way the government funds it, it also isn't there. 99% of the money goes to the school day less. We just got a nice little chunk with this American Recovery Act, but this is the first time in a long time. So that's part one of the problem. Part two of the challenge is really how we see school is this cog in a wheel, like we just need you to learn how to read and write and do math and science and then you'll be fine. Meanwhile, when we think about really learners and all of their needs, you have to think about them as holistic human beings. One in four children in Los Angeles come to school hungry. If I'm coming to school hungry, you guys know when when you are hungry, you can't even, you can't think. I'm like, what's for lunch? Oh, I, I'm not gonna get lunch then. I'm like, oh, what, what is the next meal? When you think about also this moving beyond hunger, then there's health implications. And then this really piece, this big piece around spirit, purpose, love, justice, who people are. We have a very Eurocentric school system. It's more than 80, if not 90% of teachers are white females. And when we think about how the system has been set up, whether or not students see themselves. And so all that to say, what does change the tune do? I'm going to fast forward. We build revolutionary summer and after school programs and we teach others how to do those. And it doesn't just have to be summer and after school, it could be spring break, winter break. We are thinking about how do we create revolutionary programs that see who students are and not treat them as people we want to like go become a lawyer, doctor. We want them to become transformational leaders and create the future that we can't even imagine. And so that's what we do in big form. So I'll stop right there and take any questions. So I just wanted to start us off with just um, saying that I really empathize with uh, your, your definition of education, how it's meant to fail students, especially just because um, we got, well, at least I did, I got AP scores today. So, um, you know, that was like, you know, it was funny because like how you haven't taken a test and like so many of us just got like results for like these super big tests that are, that are supposedly really important for high school. And I, I was just curious as to, you know, I think a huge issue with like progressing past tests is that a lot of people believe that testing is necessary in order to gauge uh, student interest or student knowledge or, or their, their understanding of the content. So like in your opinion and what you've experienced, what you've studied, uh, what, what do you think like an answer to that is? And what do you see as like an alternative if there really is one? You know, one of the things that's interesting about the education system is it perpetuates the wealth gap. College board, think about the way they set that up. That's a narrative I'm sure that they have spun. It's not true. So one of the things the students do in our program is they create social justice business plans. And so they work together. We look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals 
and they figure out what are they interested in. And we just had a, a, a pilot program. They've done it in two weeks, they do it in four weeks, but by the end, these kids produce a whole entire business plan. And so you ask them at the end, like, we, we do pre and post surveys. We say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you know entrepreneurship? And at the end, on, on all of our indicators, students indicate that they grow. There are rubrics in education. We like rubrics and I don't mind a rubric. And so when we, when kids are pitching, they also get to win money, but we are judging their rubric. Have you, have you learned how to think about a financial model and bring in different revenue streams? Have you thought about creativity and engaging different forms on your PowerPoint or, in, or on your pitch to be able to do so? And so there's multiple ways to measure learning. Inevitably, it's sometimes more work to, to look at this piece. And so it can get very comfortable to falling into the norm of, oh, I can just give you a test and I can do a Scantron for that versus a rubric where, where you might think when we just did this last one, some people thought that that some students should get a three and others thought students should get a two. So there's a tension there, but with the test is very right and wrong, but life is not, not like that. Life is like the rubric where we have to have conversations. And so I would push back and say, there are multiple ways to measure. Um, and there's also a new system out around mastery grading and mastery systems. And so it doesn't have to be done in the test form. That's, that's, that's money trying to keep the system in the same way, perpetuating that narrative. Yeah, I definitely get uh, the whole issue of how standardized testing and honestly wealth are just is so inextricably linked because like we look at the SATs, right? Some people can afford SAT prep and get the best of the best and do great on that test while a lot of people can't. And with APs, I took two this year and it was almost $100 per test and no one should have to pay that just to take an online test at the end of the year. And when we go to schools, right, it's kind of crazy to me that failing a test that's worth like 20% of your grade could have such an impact on how you literally perceive schooling for the rest of your middle school, high school experience, and even through college. So my question to you is kind of, since we've been discussing these systemic inequalities, and you obviously, you know, you've taught in New York, you had a nonprofit that focuses on switching things up and helping fight against these inequalities, how does music kind of factor into that? And where do you see it going when we you know, talk about curriculum development and teaching strategies? Great question. Um, so the way we use music, I live, breathe, think, sleep, eat music. I love music. Music is a way to say, I see you. Something in our program, the way we do it at the beginning, part of your program, you need to get to know who your students are to create a relationship. So we take a survey and we ask the students, who are you listening to? Who are your favorite artists? And then throughout the program, I'm literally like, if we say, okay, we're gonna go into our art session and kids have free time to work, we're playing their songs. And imagine if I say, Kanisha, what are you listening to on the radio right now? Um, I've been listening to a lot of, honestly, a lot of R&B. So that's fun. Her. If I'm like, yo, and I play her, I know that you like R&B, I got the R&B going, then you feel seen when I play that because you know that I know that you like R&B and I'm playing it. And so you feel seen, it's a vibe for you. And so that's one of the ways we use it. That's really the main way we use it. We figure out what do students like and how do we integrate it with them? And so it's a blend. Sometimes we play a little bit of jazz. Sometimes we play a little Nina Simone. Um, we use it to broaden their perspectives. If we are articulating something in class and there's a, a rhythm to it. So I used to teach math 
And there was, um, when you divide fractions, it's keep, change, flip. So you keep the first sign, you change the division to the multiplication, and then you flip the fraction. And so I would play Stevie Wonder these three words, and they'd be like, these three words, and kids would be like, keep, change, flip. And so it was a mnemonic device. And so sometimes we use it as mnemonic devices as well. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's ways to like create more engagement. Um, one other thing I'll tell you, there's a really amazing book by Zaretta Hammond. It's called Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. And when she talks about the language is the culture of the brain, and there's a culture tree. And so when you start to make connections first, music is a big piece. If I don't know you and you don't know me, but we both know that we like her, then we can just go from there. Or I just got to take an amazing class with Esperanza Spalding. If I know that you like Esperanza and I like Esperanza, then we can start vibing and we can go deeper to be able to push students because they are having an enjoyable time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually saw that there's like a playlist in Change the Tune. So I'm not sure if like you created that playlist with um, like people in the program or not. Um, but also music has been a big part of my life in general. Like really, it's a huge de-stressor. Um, but speaking of stress, you know, there's like so many standardized tests in New York City. There's the state test, then there's the SHSAT, then there are regions. So like it's ongoing. And how does that work within mental health? Like, how does that work as stressors for kids? And like, yeah, I just want to see your input on that. So one other music thing I forgot to name, and just I'm going to come back to your question, but larger, larger picture, one of the other challenges in the school system is that it operates in a very siloed way. And it's like, we're just the deliverer of the content instead of bringing in other people. And so one of the things we are really good at is bringing in other, other people, including Aim for the Heart, which coming full circle to your question, they do social emotional literacy and music. And so students get to actually process what their feelings are, what their thoughts are, what they're grappling with, but they do it through music and art. And so they will have a whole circle and they may give a piece, a, a conversation, I think last week the kids talked about fear. And so they wrote a piece on fear and they shared their piece and they gave feedback. And another way to say, I see you. So we do social emotional learning in many different ways. Um, one of those ways is in partnership with Aim for the Heart using music. We also in summer camp right now have just us time where students get to play games and, and decompress or they actually do vision boards or life maps where they get to share out about themselves. And then another critical, critical piece is we have an organization called Holistically Dope that has been rocking with us from the start and they lead yoga and mindfulness. So we start our day with breathing first. We start our team meetings with the teachers with breathing first. We realize, first of all, the, the sky is still falling. The pandemic is still happening. Is Delta tomorrow will be Gamma, Beta, Kappa? We don't know what is going to happen. So we don't ignore that when we come into the space. We first breathe and we breathe throughout the day and we acknowledge like there are these feelings that, you know, there's, I don't know if any of you are religious, but there's there's a thing called the serenity prayer. And we don't necessarily do this in camp, but the goal is to really get kids to accept the things that they can change and recognize these are not in my control and I'm gonna set this aside so that I can do, have this fun in this learning experience right now. So I just wanted to say that I love this work that you're doing. I feel like if schools were remodeled at, after what you're doing with music and um, just meditation and everything like that, I feel like, you can just, school can be something that students enjoy again and that they're there 
to grow as a person and not just their brains and not just spend their money. And I think that that's fantastic way to start. Um, and I remember you said that you were teaching um, middle schoolers and middle school is such a difficult time period. And there's such formative years as well. I feel like I was in middle school just yesterday. I was so impressionable. And um, I will say that my middle school, my seventh grade math teacher, she also incorporated a lot of music into our classes. And so um, math was always my least favorite subject. I'm more of a humanities person. Um, but to this day, I just I still remember all of the songs like, yeah, I, I sound like a nerd because I memorized the first 25 digits of pi because of a song that my math teacher taught us. And even though that may not have uh, progressed me as a student in regards to math, particularly, it progressed me as a child who was just enjoying my middle school career. And um, so I want to hear from you. What was your experience like um, surrounded by students who you knew know that anything that you say or do can completely turn their life around? It's a lot of pressure. Um, I'll name that. I walked around, actually, we had citizen schools at our school. Shout out to Global Tech Prep, Christina, before I and the crew there. Um, and before that, I worked at another school, my hall three. You do recognize kids are impressionable. You know, you do recognize you can spark something in them and you can also blow out the light in them. And so it's a lot of pressure. I'll name when I was a teacher too, I was young. So I started at 22 and I went till I was 27. And so one of the things also in teaching your, um, so your your prefrontal cortex is not actually fully developed until your mid 20s. That's another thing, like no shade to TFA, which I'm a Teach for America teacher, but like I had a sibling who was like my middle schooler's age and I was arguing with him. So sometimes I was arguing with my students too. So I've evolved a lot in the years since I was a teacher. I just have to name that out loud because my students might be like, she's not the same person. Um, but yet and still, it was fun first. So I have this new formula that I've built that I didn't know when I was there, but it, for me, when students are having fun, then they're creating memories. And if they're creating memories, that's exactly what learning is. And so we, I, I was very, I was known as a, Zaretta Hammond, I'm gonna quote her again. She has this term called the warm demander. I didn't know what it was called then. Some people might be like, I was more demanding than warm. But I believe that every one of my kids, I'll, I would tell them, I want you to hire me one day. And so I felt this pressure to constantly push them forward to make sure that they had every opportunity available. Many of my students came in middle school, sixth and seventh graders not knowing their times tables. And so it was critical for me. Some people are like, don't do drill and skill, but I wanted them to be able to develop a level of number sense. And so there's like, coming back to music, there's these this album that does like hip hop times tables. And so we would play that all the time. We would play times table games. Um, and for me also, it was important to, to connect it to real world things. Like math will be like, you know, if, if I told my students, what's two times two? And they're like, uh, and if I said, you know, if you had $2 and we add two more dollars, they, then they know, oh, that's $4. Why didn't you just, when you start making it connect to who they are, what matters to them. And so, um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. 
and also the most beautiful, powerful, rewarding thing. I think my teachers taught, my students taught me many lessons, like how to be more patient, how to accept the things I can't control. And also it really woke me up. It was the start to the system, understanding that the system was broken. I worked on the fifth floor of a walk-up that had no AC. And in New York City, if you live in New York, it's like 95 degrees in June when they're still in school. That doesn't make any sense. You know, some of the things that would happen made no sense. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm like working against itself. So the, the experience was powerful and humbling and just all the things. Obviously a huge issue with standardized testing is that it's so central to how we evaluate students, but at its core, it's extremely inaccurate. Um, and like, at least for me, and standardized testing, I don't know about other states, but it's a huge part of your experience as a student in New York City. You take your first state test in third grade. Sometimes if you even want to get into a GNT program, you have to take a standardized test in pre-K or kindergarten. Like that's what my sibling did when we moved here. Um, and for example, when it comes to middle school, I had to take a test in the sixth grade to try and get into a middle school um, for seventh grade and above, actually two tests that year. And then I had to take four tests for voluntary tests in the eighth grade to try and, you know, get into a good high school. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you've got region state tests, like I believe Vanessa was saying earlier. And in high school, it just seems to get a lot worse with so many different things being thrown at you. So um, you were talking a bit about this earlier, but could you expand on, you know, some alternatives to standardized testing and how we can effectively phase them into the public school system? Sure. I mean, I think honestly, the mastery transcript, I'm not as familiar with it, but I think that's something to definitely look into where students do project-based learning and then they have a level of, it's, it's competency-based learning, which also Christina works on now, where you have a project, there's a rubric, you meet it or you don't meet it. And then there's ways to give students feedback when they don't meet it. And so for me, the I think the most critical way and thing that we should be looking at is, is what are projects that we can create that still have a level of cultural responsiveness that also um, can then be graded via a rubric and using a collective group, a diverse collective group of people to ensure that students are able to master it. And when I say diverse, I mean, I think students should sit at the table. I think teachers should be at the table. I think parents should be at the table. And, and the other piece is, is I don't actually think that students in Beverly Hills should do the same project that students in Watts are doing. Like, how do we create, I don't know that we should have standardized testing or standardized measures. I think we need to actually create a system that makes metrics for the human beings individuality. And so um, I know as a system, we're like, we need to measure, we need to be able to do these things, but you have to actually think about how do we see people for who they are and what their goals are. If I want to be an engineer and you want to be an artist, why are we taking the same test? You know, and if we're doing something standard across the board, then theoretically, or even the projects across the board, and I'm not saying that like there are some basic things that we all need to know, but how do you make it relevant for who people are and what they need is, is, is a question. And I think it's an ongoing question. I don't have answers for everything else I'll say. 
I really think that that idea is like really fantastic, particularly because I know that project-based learning is such an important thing and that tons of students thrive off of it. But I definitely know students who are really, really good test takers and who are really, really just thrive off of that environment as well. And, you know, a part of me is like, yeah, but all students should have availability to um project-based learning and to take that away from students or to not have that option is to be hindering their their um, educational career and their growth but like the other part of me is like but maybe we need to have options for students but then how do you compare across options right so it's just like this whole like chaos of million ideas coming into my head and thankfully I'm not the one who makes the decisions at the end of the day and it's not up to me um it's up to someone who can probably start that out better than I do um I but there has to be some way to figure that out right can I well I would insert in there do we have to compare I think that's part of our society where where some of this goes wrong like we have these set beliefs that things have to be the way and one of the every system's perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So the norms, I think we need to be looking at all of the components of the norms. Maybe we shouldn't be comparing across because things are so different. Um, you know, really thinking about this piece around if I wanna be in, if I, well, two pieces. One, most careers, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just based off of what I know. In Fortune 500 companies, let's say the goal, our society's goal is to get you in a Fortune 500 company. 90% of those employees are not taking tests. <laughs> like they're not regularly taking tests. So, and, and they're not being compared. When they're being compared, you have a rubric as an employee. When you go to work in corporate America, there you have an evaluation, there's a rubric. It's not a test. And so, you know, if we are modeling for what we currently exist, I think thinking about like, what are the things that matter to us? And then having the conversations like this matters to us. Um, and, and how can we evaluate that per se? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, kind of adding on to Madeline, like there, you know, there's like so many standardized tests. There's so many like, so like recently, for example, they've made the SAT test optional. I was wondering like your opinion on that. Um, and my second question would be like, where do you think children with like perhaps like some disabilities, where do you, they stand in kind of like the compass or like the blueprint that you envision? So part one to answer your question about the SAT, yes, do away with it. If you look at the history of the college board and equity, like, yeah, so um, I think that they have a lot, not that they're a horrible organization, I think there's a lot of room to grow and there are some some things that they do well, so I'll name that. But at the end of the day, I don't think any test that directly correlates to your income level and or your race is probably not a test that we should use for something that is a catalyst for most students to be able to go into the next level of success in society. So I would say that. Um, the second piece of your question was, oh, I was on it. You said, remind me really quickly, sorry. Yeah, no problem. It was kind of like, where do you think children with disabilities stand within like the compass or like the blueprint that you're envisioning for the future? Shout out to my friend, Zach. Zach uh, Smith is my peer coach at Harvard and children with disabilities are teachers for us. How to think about learning differently. So one thing I haven't talked about is universal design for learning. 
how do we turn in or not even just turn in, but how do we create learning experiences for those who learn differently? We all really learn differently. Um, you know, I might process really fast and you might read fast or, and so I might prefer to do things with music. One of the beauties of my experience at Harvard, I've used a whole lot of music and a whole lot of assignments and the professors are saying, okay. And I'm like, let's roll with this. Meanwhile, I've been in some other settings and I could not do the same. And so I think coming back full circle to children with disabilities, I think they are those who are able to teach us we need to think outside the box what are the norms that we have and what are these broken norms and how can we learn from them and i'll give you an example um i when our kids do their social justice business plan i, I would like all students to pitch but i have to think about students who can't speak or may have challenges speaking and so just recently we've had a conversation can they do speech to text can they do excuse me text to speech can they um have can we set it up so that where they speak is very strategic if they want to speak and so just thinking about like i think when we try to make things all look the same homogeneous that's when we get in trouble that's when people get hurt that's when inequity be becomes a thing um and so to answer your question i think they're great teachers for us oh actually on that point i have experienced um the my brother has an individualized education plan. He has a learning disability and where he's really behind in writing. And, you know, if you can't write, you can't do math, you can't do science, you can't do English or reading, or, or he can read, but he can't write. Like, so it's a really big deal. And his teachers have kind of like not given up on him, but he's just kind of, they're just kind of letting him fall behind. And it's been really easy during remote learning. And so I feel like it's really teacher by teacher, their abilities to make accommodations for these kids who have learning disabilities or physical disabilities. It's really varies. And um, that's because like, I feel like it's an individual thing. Not everyone has the capacity to accommodate for such um, needs, special needs. And so I think like, but at the same time, I think that all teachers can grow as well. And not that everyone needs to be able to accommodate for the needs of specific kids, but I think it's very important as a teacher to be able to um, adapt in some capacity to specific needs. And so I was actually wondering if you could um, give a message to all the teachers out there and how they should or shouldn't change the way that they teach or how they are accommodating of students. Like, what would you say to everyone? Um, a couple of things. One, I would want to go back to, you said, if you can't write, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. That's not necessarily true. Imagine if he was getting verbal instructions. Imagine if the system was changed for him, what he could be able to do if we didn't just stick with this one norm. Um, and so for me, the, the critical piece of things for me is we really have to think about as teachers, first of all, shout out to all the, all the teachers because the work is not easy. I just need to name that. The work is not easy. We're working in a system. So the teachers are a part of a system that hasn't been designed. It's been telling you, you know, people do things based off of the way that they've been taught. I've, I've been taught to do things. And so now we're going to do the things in the way that I've been taught. And so how do you do things in a different way? Um, and so I think that's the question I would ask teachers. Are you doing things only in the way that you've been taught? 
how are you there's a new format out it's called not format but i don't know if you guys have heard of equity and design thinking so there's design thinking but then there's equity with the lens noting of the context that you're operating in and noting who you are and actually taking a lens of thinking about who are the people in your ecosystem what are their different lenses what are their needs how do you seed power when you need to seed power and so i would say as teachers the more we ask questions and the more we adapt, the better we get for our students. And so I know that there are lots of teachers doing that, um, but I would I would just encourage us as a whole thinking about how do we, that universal design, that equity and design mixed together is something that I could think could be really powerful for our communities. I just wanted to touch on an earlier point you made about like homogenous education or any like uniformity. and. Um, I think I, I really like that that statement kind of really resonated with me how you can't just have one form of education because obviously you're going to have um, inequity and I think uh, I, I think I saw like a picture and it was like equality versus equity and like they were standing there were people standing on boxes I feel like it's a it's a pretty uh, common picture but I, I feel like that, that's sort of related to that so I'm, I'm curious as to know like how you would try to have um, education that is based around the students rather than like a core curriculum and how exactly you'd be able to sort of cater to uh, what you're trying to teach. So to me, equality, equity, those are old, you know, the word, but it's adaptive, it's liberation actually. And I don't need equity, I need liberation. I need to be completely free to do whatever I wanna do. Um, I'll name we're evolving in that every day. I think the more choice you can give students, I think there's a couple of keywords I'll say. Choice is one. So when students come into a place like, one, what do they like? What do they want? What matters to them? And then being able to give them choices around that in the learning experience. So for example, um, kids might take an art class, but there is no set outcome for the art class. It's you can build a flyer in any way, shape or form you want to. Um, and, and I hope to one day say, it's not even just a flyer. You can build a music video in this session, or this in this session. We're trying to, the more you can, can do that. I think the second piece of things besides um, choice is access. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, one of the critical pieces of our, our program is called possibility panels, where we bring in BIPOC leaders to share their stories and their journeys about their careers. And so giving students access to different experiences from that to field trips elsewhere, thinking about that we don't have to sit in a traditional classroom. This is our second year in a virtual summer camp. I mean, the last year when it was done, I was like, we really had kids stay for four weeks with us online for multiple hours a day. This really worked. And I'm so happy. Of course it worked because we gave them choice. One of the things, the other piece of this is listening to students. Um, the first, when we started summer camp last year, we we had a schedule and the kids were like, so we want to do what we want to do. And so we built in choice time and it's happened again this year in, in their loving choice time. So um, I think those are some elements that I think are critical is ensuring that it's student oriented. The last thing I'll say, one of the things we're working on in our summer program is decentering the teacher's voice. Students are brilliant on their own. So my hope is when, like if we have an hour as a class, maybe it's 10 minutes of the teacher's voice to give them some basic, like here's how you do it or here's some things to consider. But then like figuring out ways to give students experiences to work amongst themselves and talk amongst themselves is super powerful. 
It's kind of a final question. It's been such a privilege to hear your insight. Honestly, like I've only been talking to you for like 20 or 30 minutes and I already feel so enlightened. Um, but I am also aware that you uh, kind of like started a food justice program and that is so cool. I was just wondering, like, can you tell us a little bit more about that program and like how it has been impactful and like for any listeners out there and how they can help out? Yeah, so um, part of our model is food justice. So when we think about what matters to kids, if kids are coming to school, we talked, we started off talking about if kids are hungry, then they're not going to pay attention. Also, when I worked for Green Dot, I was in charge of their food, school nutrition program. Kids were protesting some days. And they did it when I was in New York City Department of Ed too, like we're not eating this. So then they're choosing to be hungry. And so it started out of that because kids like to cook, they like to eat and it's ways to teach learning. So in, in some of our after school programs, we literally teach kids different meals from around the world and how to make them. And then towards the end, we ask them what they wanna make and then they create those. When we're teaching them different meals, we do focus more on lots of veggies. We've introduced them into veganism. Um, and so that's a big piece of this. We've also partnered with a local cafe, Hot and Cool Cafe, who has helped us serve meals to our families um, and give out gift cards so that they can get meals. Um, we also have, uh, so it's, it's multi-pronged and multi-component to the school program. One thing I'll say is I started it actually as a teacher. I started cooking with kids. And what I found was kids go home to their parents and then they influence their parents' diets. So for example, and I'll tell you one little story to close out. We had a student and her grandmother refused to try veganism and the mom was vegan. It's either vegan or vegetarian, but let's say veganism. And after the student coming to our program and experiencing vegan food, she went home to the grandma, I think it was like a shared household, and she was like, grandma, this food is great. Like, you should try it. And so they move the grandma's the grandma tried it and she's like this is not bad and now the grandma's eating vegan two days a week and so when you think about how to introduce students to we've worked with usc on building an aquaponic system so we're we're working now on figuring out long term what the food justice program looks like but it's a lot of teaching kids how to cook how to garden and then bring that back to their families and partner with their families we're closing out so i just want to say i really appreciate this opportunity to um speak with you all today this is revolutionizing the learning space is my love language and i could talk about it all day i know that there's I, i'll name there's a lot for me to learn in the space there's lots of theories out there and there's 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 i think part of the critical piece of learning in this learning space is knowing that there's always more to learn and evolve and change um so excited to speak with young individuals like yourself hear your questions hear your experiences and, and learn from you guys in this conversation our website is www.changetune.org. So www.changetune.org. And follow us on the gram at Change the Tune. And follow us at Facebook. It's also Change the Tune. And then I believe on LinkedIn, we're Change the Tune. So the website takes out the the, but um, please, please connect with us in any way, shape, or form. Um, and yes, the one other thing, I am super excited to be working with Jim this year we're going to be building out an incubator and an accelerator in the program thinking about some of our social justice entrepreneurship work we do with change the tune to be able to partner with them to carry the work forward for our refugee community so um thank you again guys